a, a few of the psalms that surround it. Um, uh, one of the things I enjoy about coming here is that you still sing out of hymn books. So I appreciate that. Uh, it takes me back to my childhood. Uh, very few churches do that uh, these days. And so it's always fun to, to sing out of the hymn book and to think about how those who put your hymn book together uh, have actually thought about some of those songs and readings that they place around them and so forth. Uh, because many times I think we, uh, we think about the hymn books even that we sing about as just kind of randomly placed together, but there is some strategy behind the way the hymns have been placed and so forth, uh, in much the same way that there is a very important strategy around which the book of Psalms has been fashioned for us. In other words, I think a lot of times, and this is kind of the way I grew up, especially when I was learning how to do a quiet time and learning how to spend time in the Word of God, is that uh, it was always easy to just open up the book of Psalms. After all, it's right in the middle, right? And uh, to just pick a psalm for the day. Um, but as I've learned over the years to read the, the Bible a little better, what I've found is that, um, and it's not original to me, is that this, the book of Psalms actually has its own structure, it has its own form, and in some ways it has the, the reading of the psalms includes reading the psalms around it. Uh, we're going to see that today in Psalms 130 and 131. But also, if you look at Psalm 130... If you look at the title that's above your psalm, now in mine, I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning, in Psalm 130 it says, hope in the Lord's forgiving love, but then right under that, that's, by the way, that's not scriptural, um, it says a song of ascents, or you might have something different. If you have an older version, you might have a song of degrees or something like that, but it has this title, and in the original Hebrew from which this is translated, that's actually part of verse 1. But what we find is that Psalm 130 comes to us in a small collection in the book of Psalms made up of 15 psalms. So if, you have, if you're looking at Psalm 130, flip back a page. There might be multiple pages, but one of the things, if you look back at Psalm 120, it says at the title, A Song of Ascents, right? And then 121 and 122 and so forth until we get all the way over to Psalm 134. Mine... All 15 of those psalms are on two pages. One of the things that characterizes this group of psalms is their brevity. Other than Psalm 132, most of them are, are about six to eight verses. So it's pretty, pretty short, pretty small, but each of them is brought together under this title, A Song of Ascents. And this group of 15 psalms has then been brought together into the book of psalms, and it has a reason why it's there. And what I want to do is explore a little bit of what that is using Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 as kind of, the, kind of our, our, our jumping in point to the songs of ascent. Because these are very important. For, uh, they have a, they, in some sense, they have a lot of historical value in the sense of a song of ascent kind of implies this idea of going up. It, basically, these songs are songs for the going up. And the big question is, where are we going? Uh, what's the idea? Where are they going? Why, why, do, why are they all titled that? Well, historically speaking, they were probably used in annual pilgrimages in multiple times when, when people of Israel would go up to Jerusalem. And so there's kind of a historical background to some of these, yet at the same time, they have been collected together and placed into the context, placed into the book of Psalms. And for the book of Psalms, the place where people are going up, where the people of God are going up, is to Zion, to Jerusalem, to this, this place in which God is going to give them blessing, and He's going to give them salvation. We just read from, from Isaiah 2, and it pictures this for us. 
Isaiah 2, the first few verses, talks about in the end of days that God is going to raise up the mountain of Jerusalem, of Zion, and all nations are going to go up to it. They're going to stream to it. So the idea of going up in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament is not just a historical going up to the literal Jerusalem, but it also includes this notion that we are going up to the place from which God is going to provide salvation where his, his Messiah is going to rule over his kingdom. And so we see that played out. The key passage in the Songs of Ascent, these 15 verses, uh, fifteen chapters, is Psalm 132, where there is this promise to David concerning his anointed that God is going to give him an eternal throne. And so there is a messianic impact to these 15, 15 chapters. Let's go back to Psalm 130 and read the text and then see how that fits in to what we're talking about. It says in verse 1, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 131 as well. This short psalm of David. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So these two psalms, as you can see, are brought together. Did you hear the repetition? The very end of chapter 130, Psalm 130, there is this notion in verse 7 for Israel to hope in the Lord. And then in Psalm 131, we hear the same thing. Verse 3, O Israel, Hope in the Lord. And so these two psalms are brought together around this this notion of what hope is. You see, the songs of ascent provide the people uh, of God a pattern for walking through the wilderness, for treading this life on their way home to the place of God's rule. They are songs, we might say, for the journey home, the journey toward the messianic kingdom, and that is the hope of those who follow him. But you can see that the the path towards that Jerusalem, the path towards that Zion, the the path towards the place where blessing streams from is wrought with difficulty, isn't it? And so Psalm 130 starts off kind of in the low spot. It says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. So there is a a deep longing for something here that the psalmist is then uh, requesting deliverance from, or as it says, uh, the voice of my supplications, the, the voice of my crying out for grace is what he's calling for. And so there is a depth here, a, a deep longing for some victory or from some deliverance out of a deep, dark place. Uh, Spurgeon put it this way. He says, beneath the floods... And that's how it starts off, out of the depths, beneath the floods, prayer here by the psalmist lived and struggled. Yea, above the roar of the billows, the deeps, rose the cry of faith. You know, Spurgeon says, it little matters where we are if we can pray, but prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. And then listen to what he says here. 
deep places beget deep devotion. Depths of earnestness are stirred by the depths of tribulation. Deep places beget deep devotion. And we hear that from the psalmist. The psalmist is not having an easy time. He's he's crying out to the Lord out of the depths and crying out for grace here. And so we see that the depths are there, but we also see a deep faith that's there. Deep places beget deep devotions, or as Spurgeon goes on to say, diamonds sparkle most against the darkness. Diamonds sparkle most against the darkness. Well, the big question for us this morning then is when we are in the depths, which could range, be a multitude of things in our life, um, when we are in those depths that he's crying out for him, how can we have the same posture of hope that David has? How can we have that same posture of hope that the psalmist has in Psalm 130 and David has in Psalm 131? What does that posture of faith look like? What does that posture of hope look like? And so what I want to do this morning is kind of from 130, 131, give you four imperatives. So if we want to have uh, kind of a pattern of hope in our life, uh, ways of navigating the depths on our way to eternity, let me give you four imperatives kind of pulled from the text. Can I do that? Number one, um, on the one hand, from Psalm 130, we need to address our plea for grace to the true God. So if we, if we want to understand what it looks like to have this kind of posture of hope, we first need to address our plea, our crying out to the Lord, to the true God. Uh, we, we need to bring Him our request for grace in situations. Now, what, what is that talking about? Look at verse 1. It says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord... Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Now, the idea here is that hope stems. Hope in our life stems from our knowledge of God. Our hope in in life and in treading through the wilderness of this life stems from how well we know our God and that we know the true God. Um, As seen in the psalmist, the, the psalmist addresses this God in multiple ways. So let me show you something that doesn't, unfortunately, come through as quite as easily in our English as it does in Hebrew. But uh, look at the ways that the, that the writer refers to God. So if you have your, I don't know, if you have a pencil or pen or whatever, look, look and you can even circle the ways that he describes this God. Verse 1, out of the depths I have cried to you, and mine says, O Lord. But as you notice, it's written in small caps, right? And so that's our key for us as readers to recognize that It's not just Lord, but he's specifically talking about the name of God, the name Yahweh. So his his cry for hope, his cry for supplication here, comes to Yahweh. But in the next verse, look at the next verse, verse 2. He says, Lord, hear my voice. And you should see a difference in the way that Lord is written in verse 2. So in verse 1, Lord is there with small caps to indicate that this is the name, the old the name of God used in the Old Testament, namely Yahweh. Okay, so here we have the name of God used, but in the second verse we have not Yahweh, but the name Adonai. The the word Adonai in Hebrew just means Lord. It can be used as Adon is even a human Lord, but it's used in the Old Testament of God as the title Adonai. That's not his name, that's his title. That's a title used to describe him, and that's different. So on the one hand, verse 1, we hear about Yahweh. In verse 2, he appeals to his Adonai, his Lord. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, 
Now there, it's the shorter form, but it's still referencing Yahweh. It uses the word Yah. So Yah is short. If you remember, hallelujah. Anytime you say hallelujah, you're saying praise Yah. Praise, let us praise Yah or Yahweh. So yes, Yah. So we have Lord in the first verse, so Yahweh. We have Adonai in the second verse. In the third verse, we have Yah talking about Yahweh. But in the same verse, if the Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It goes back to Adonai. And as you're working through the psalm, what you find is he kind of jumps back and forth between Yahweh, the covenant name of God, but also he titles him Adonai, Lord, Sovereign. For example, verse 5, I wait for whom? I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits for him, and in his word do I hope. And then verse 6, my soul waits for Adonai. So he's using both kind of throughout the psalm. Verse, verse 7, kind of the pinnacle of the psalm here, he, he expresses that Israel should hope in Yahweh, because with Yahweh there is loving kindness. So you can see that the, kind of the psalmist is intentional here in the way that he uses the name of God. And if you were to compare Psalm 130 with the other 14 psalms in the Songs of Ascent, he, is, he uses the name of God over and over again much more than any other psalm in that collection. And it's the only time in the collection that he uses the title Adonai for him. So three times in Psalm 130, and you have them there in verse 2, and then in verse 3, and then again in verse 6, he uses this title Adonai. Why the difference? What's the importance? You're like, I thought we were coming to hear a sermon, not an Old Testament uh, lecture, right? Well, let's, this is important. This is actually important stuff. So here's, here's the point, is that when he's addressing his request for grace, he's addressing it to the true God. And that God is understood as Yahweh, but Yahweh is Adonai. Now, what's the importance of that? Well, the name Yahweh, if we were to take the time, and there's some other passage I want to go to, so we're not going to go back to it. But Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, um, Moses has a mountaintop experience, right? He goes up on Mount Sinai uh, before Israel ever comes to Mount Sinai. And he has an encounter at the burning bush with this one who reveals himself to him as Yahweh, the God of his fathers. And then he says in chapter 4, this is my memorial name. This is the name by which you're going to know me. You're going to know me from here on out as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the implication is, the reason God tells him that, and the reason he gives him his name in Exodus 4 is so that he might have this comfort that God is going to be with him. Moses says, God, you know, why me? Why are you sending me? And he, he gives him some explanations and says, look, I'm going to be with you. And then he gives him his name to confirm that. And the basis for that name ultimately becomes the basis of the covenant. So the, the name Yahweh or Yah emphasizes the, the presence of God with the psalmist, but also it emphasizes and focuses our attention on the covenant that God has made with him. Yahweh being this covenant name, the memorial name by which God would know. In other words, when, when you hear about Yahweh, you should immediately go to, oh yeah, that's the God who promised Israel that he was going to bless them and bring them into the land and bring them into the place where they're going up in the songs of ascent. So this has a lot of a lot of background. I mean, this is important. And so he, on the one hand, focuses his attention and brings his prayer for grace to Yahweh because he recognizes that Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. Yahweh is the one who promises to bless, 
promises to be present and will fulfill his word. And in fact, that's why in verse 7, if you look down there, it says, O Israel, hope in Yahweh. Hope in the Lord. Hope in Yahweh. Because with Yahweh, with that God who has revealed himself to you, there is loving kindness. And that term means a loyal love. NAS says loving kindness. If you have ESV, or it might say steadfast love. Old King James says mercy. But it emphasizes, it focuses our attention on God's covenant fidelity. The reason they could hope in the Lord and Yahweh is because when he promises something, he, he does it. He's loyal to that. He's, there's a certain covenant fidelity that he continually holds. And so here the psalmist addresses his plea to Yahweh because he knows that is indicative of his character, of who he is, that he's made a promise to him. Yet at the same time, he turns around and addresses that same request. So he says, out of the depths I have cried to you, Yahweh... Verse 2, Adonai, hear my voice. So it seems somewhat repetitive, and one of the things he's doing here is varying it because of poetic value, yet at the same time, his point is that when he, when he makes his request to Adonai, the sovereign, the powerful God, he's making his request to a God who is able to answer it. Does that make sense? In the sense of, when he makes a request to Yahweh, And if Yahweh is the sovereign, the powerful God, then he can have certainty that God, this God, is able to do that. He can have certainty that, according to verse 4, there is forgiveness with Adonai. O Lord, who can stand if if you hold their sins against him, but there's forgiveness with you? The, The same God who's made a covenant is the same God who's powerful enough to bring about these promises that he has made. So, in some sense, then, what the... What the author is doing is crying out to this God, and he's recognizing, on the one hand, God has committed himself to him, to the psalmist, and on the other hand, he recognizes that this is the all-powerful God who's able to bring these things about. Go back up for just a second to Psalm 121. Just a belo- I mean, this is great. I love Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms uh, in the text. And it says, kind of over and over again, that Yahweh is our keeper. He's the one who protects those who are his. But the reason I want you to kind of come here is verse 1. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh. There's that term again, that name. My help comes from him. And oh, by the way, what characterizes Yahweh is that he is the one who created the heavens and earth. So his, his appeal for help, or his looking for help focuses in on Yahweh because Yahweh is the only one who made the heavens and the earth, who's all-powerful, and therefore, if he can make the heavens and the earth, he can certainly help us, right? And so kind of throughout these songs of ascent, what you find is that there is an appealing to this God as this powerful God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, and we see that, for example, look at Psalm 124. It ends with, our help is in the name of the Lord, Who did what? Who made heaven and earth. So they come back to this idea that the all-powerful creator is the only one that we can find protection and security and ultimately hope in. Because he's not only committed himself to us in this covenant, but he's also the powerful God who can bring all these about. He is Adonai. So, kind of the application for us is just very simply to do exactly what the author does. 
when we find ourselves in the depths, not just the, the most deep, dark place you can ever imagine, but in those everyday occurrences when we're struggling to find hope in our life and find the joy of the, of the gospel, we address our plea for grace back to our Yahweh, our Adonai, the one who loves us, the one who has brought us to himself and committed himself to us, but also the one who's very powerful to bring answers to our prayers. So we exacerbate our despair whenever then we look for comfort and we look for answers to our distress in wrong places. The only place we're going to find answers, and as he says here in verse 2, the uh, supplications, namely looking for grace from this God, the only place we're going to find that is with him, not with other people, not with other things. At the same time, we have to remember that oftentimes the means by which God brings answers to those prayers for grace and hope is through his body, it's through the church together. So address our plea. Address our plea for grace to the true God, and we can begin to understand how we might navigate the depths of this, of this life. It's a struggle, but we can address our plea. So he freely acknowledges we're going to go through those times, yet at the same time, we need to make sure that we're making our requests to the true God. He's Yahweh, he's Adonai. Number two, uh, verses three, three and four, very important here, is uh, I would say that the second imperative for navigating, trying to find hope, is to remember God's forgiveness. To remember God's forgiveness. So on the one hand, address our plea for grace to the true God. On the, on the second hand, we need to remember God's forgiveness. In other words, hope is, uh, stems from recognition of our relationship with God. It stems from our recognition of our relationship with God. So remembering, as he says here in verse 3, if you, O, Adon- o Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? And the answer is what? Absolutely nobody, right? If you should keep iniquities, O Lord, who could stand if you were to do that? If you were to maintain and hold our sins against us on a regular basis and in some sense find joy in doing that or find uh, you know, uh, that you constantly do that, then nobody's going to stand. But, he says, verse 4, one of the greatest verses here, but there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you in order that you may be feared. In other words, that we might align ourselves and understand the type of relationship we have. So forgiveness breeds submission, fear. Forgiveness breeds right relationship. So hope stems from recognizing that this relationship has been established as a result of the forgiveness of sin. The one who is both Yahweh, the one who takes pleasure in pouring out His grace upon sinners... And yet, at the same time, is Adonai who's powerful enough to bring that forgiveness to bear. So remembering our forgiveness props a proper recognition of our relationship. Proper recognition of our relationship. So on the one hand, um, these verses, this notion of forgiveness and so forth, these verses raise the impossibility of a sinner standing before God. And the Psalms open that way. Um, that sinners will not stand in judgment. On the other hand, it shows, these verses show that the foundation of our plea for grace is the forgiveness that the Lord takes pleasure in pouring out to us. So remembering God's forgiveness. And I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to be done. So I'm trying to figure out whether I need to move to my next point or not. 
So Matt didn't give me a time, so I'm just assuming that whenever I get hungry, I should stop. Uh, or if I start hearing Matt's stomach growl, probably need to stop. But number three, so we need to wait. I mean, that's just the simple command, but how do we wait? So number three, not only remembering God's forgiveness, but also waiting expectantly in God's word. Waiting expectantly for God to fulfill his promises. Hope stems, here's the point, is that the hope that we should have and the hope that we long for stems from confidence that God's word is true and that he is faithful to complete his work in us. So look at verse 5. The psalmist says, uh, having had forgiveness of sins, understanding my proper relationship of fearing God and submitting to Him, he says, I wait for the Lord. That, that, is my, that is my proper response. I'm in the depths. I'm crying out to the Lord, asking Him to hear my words, asking Him to hear my prayer for grace. I recognize that He forgives and that He enjoys doing that um, and that He should be feared. He should be submitted to as a result. And so his response is, I wait. We never get to the end of the story here in Psalm 130 where God answers. It's kind of left hanging there. He says, I wait for it. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. So in the meantime, so here's, here's kind of the point of verse 5. Um, we may not have an answer, but the, the patient longing, the proper posture of hope, is to wait expectantly that God is going to fulfill his word. Daniel's a good example of this. Daniel's a great example. If we had time, I I would love to go to Daniel 9. Um, Daniel 9, let me just kind of tell the story. Daniel 9 is an important chapter in the book. Because in Daniel 9, Daniel takes the word. So this is a great example. Daniel takes the scroll of Jeremiah. So you can imagine this. Daniel in Babylon has the scroll of Jeremiah, and he's reading it. And he's reading particularly Jeremiah 25, which talks about exile and the end of the exile and the 70 years of exile, and he's struggling to understand it. And what what Daniel does in reading the Word of God is then pins a prayer, prays a prayer in response to Jeremiah 25. So if you kind of imagine this, what Daniel 9 does is Daniel reads the Word, and he basically prays the Word. And in praying that Word, he lifts up this prayer from exile, asking God to bring about the promise of Jeremiah 25. So if you can imagine this, Daniel is reading Jeremiah 25. He prays to the Lord that God might take Jeremiah 25 and bring it to bear in his life and in the life of his nation. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. In the meantime, Daniel has to wait. Daniel doesn't kind of see that. Daniel never comes back to the land is kind of the point. But here he he prays that prayer. So it's like this. He's waiting for the Lord. I'm waiting expectantly for God to do something. And in the meantime, the, the means by which I find hope as I tread through that wilderness is the word. So in other words, I... I, I the, the, the fodder, we might say, for the hope that we have as we wait expectantly for God to fulfill His promises is to feast on His Word. Let me give you an example. Turn to Romans 15 for just a second. Romans 15. One of the things that Scripture does for us is to prompt our hoping in God. And the, our hope is, in some sense, 
fertilized and, and cultivated by a continual hoping in and reading and feasting on that word. In, in Romans 15, it even says that this is one of the reasons that it's written. Romans 15, um, look at verse 4. There's a lot here, but he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament. The things that were written, he's just quoted from Psalm 69. So he quotes from Psalm 69, and he says, Oh, by the way, that was written uh, for your instruction. And the purpose of that instruction, look at the second half of the verse. So that through perseverance, persevering through what you go through, and look what it says, the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Our, in other words, our hope does not rest on having a positive disposition about our life. Or just kind of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our, our hope is centered upon the Word. So the, the Word functions in our life to prompt a hope in, in us. We read about it in 1 Peter 1 a little bit earlier, where it says that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, or fix our hope completely on the, on the revelation to be brought to us, or the, the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says at the end of the chapter, it's all about the Word. He transitions to the Word. So he teaches us to fix our hope, and he shows us how. By taking in the, the spiritual nourishment of the Word. So there's an important means by which God brings us to a point of having this great hope in Him, and it's His Word. So here the psalmist, back in Psalm 130, says, Look, I wait for Him, and I'm patiently waiting for that, and particularly my hope is centered upon His Word, because that is where He has revealed what He's going to do. And if I don't know what He's going to do and the things that He's promised, then my hope is somewhat in vain, and it's only a worldly hope and an aspiration, not a confident assurance that God is going to fulfill the things that he said he's going to do. So our, our Christian life, the means by which we can have this posture of faith throughout our spiritual wanderings through the wilderness on the way to eternity, is by feasting on the Word and understanding the hope that it paints out for us. So what does this Word promise then? If you go back to Psalm 130, the confidence that the, the writer has, the reason he's waiting for him to fulfill his word, is because of verses 7 and 8. The promise that he has, he calls upon Israel to hope in the Lord, and he gives us two very biblical promises. So it's as if he says, look, this, as I'm reading Scripture, and as I'm hearing the Word of God, these are, here, here's two things that are hugely important, and if you remember these, you'll have hope. Hope in the Lord. Why? Verse 7, because with Yahweh, with that God, who's a covenant-making God, there is loving kindness. We talked about that word earlier, this covenant fidelity that he has. We can have confidence that he's going to accomplish what he says he's going to do. He's going to bless. He's going to give life. How? How does he do that? Verse 7, there is loving kindness, but with him is abundant redemption. And then he says in verse 8 that he will... Yahweh will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The hope, then, is centered on these biblical promises of God's covenant-keeping, that he's going to bring about the things he's promised, but also that he's going to redeem. This is much the same. I think when I think about that, I think about um, Job in Job 19, where he says, look, I know from the midst of crying out from distress, right, very clearly in the depths, he cries out and says, 
I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, I will, I will see Him in my flesh. So my body is going to waste away, yet I'm going to see Him. He has this hope of redemption. Or as one writer says, he, he takes the flag of victory and he doesn't plant it on his house, he plants it on his grave. And he says, look, this is not the end of the story. There's a victory here that's going to happen because I'm going to know my Redeemer. I'm going to know my redemption. It becomes a very important notion for us to pay attention to, that if we're going to have biblical hope, we're going to have to remember that that comes from taking the Word of God and just cultivating it into our life on a regular basis because in it we understand what God is going to do. And David gives us an example. In Psalm 131, David says, look, here's, here's the proper disposition of someone who has this confident hope in their life. He says, I'm not haughty. I'm not involving myself in great matters. I've composed and quieted my soul before this God. I'm, I'm clearly in dependence upon him. But then he, he adds this in verse 3, and this is very important. He says, O Israel, hope in Yahweh... But he says, this hope extends into eternity. So he says, this hope can be trusted in, O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forever. Yahweh, the God who is faithful, the God who is loyal, who has covenant fidelity, who promises redemption, he can be hoped in because he is the one who has written the ending. And so that's kind of my fourth imperative, if, I, if, you're, if you're anxiously awaiting for what that fourth one is. Hope in dependence on God. Hope in dependence on God. The foundation of our hope is the end of day's work that God has planned. Well, as we kind of think about this... Um, when in this journey do we need this kind of hope? So if we're going to get real practical, we've kind of seen what the, the author is doing here. When in this journey do we need hope? I, and I was just thinking uh, last night and this morning about maybe some, some times that we feel that pressure where we might find ourselves not in the deepest part of our life, but in the, in the depths when we're struggling to keep our, our eyes on Jesus. And so when, is the, when in this journey do we need this kind of hope? So let me just kind of offer some ideas. Well, when the things of earth have, in some sense, clouded the things of heaven, and we're having trouble setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, when we struggle to lift our eyes to heaven, we need this type of hope, and we should cry out to the Lord for grace to help us in that time of need. When we have a crisis of faith, when we have a crisis of faith brought on primarily, I, I see this happening with people who are in the church by circumstances. Uh, we see some of that, uh, you know, working at a college, we see some of that where people come out from under the wings of their parents, so to speak, and they, they come to the university and they have a crisis of faith. And it's brought on by, man, I never thought about it that way. or I never. And so they have this kind of crisis that they need to cry out to the Lord. Perhaps a little bit more applicable to a situation in the church like this would be that our children go through a crisis of faith. And that is a deep, dark place. I have a friend who is walking through that right now. Very godly, biblically-oriented friend who does you know, daily family worship times and so forth, struggling with a, a daughter who's in some sense rebelled. That's a deep, dark place. When we are broken, perhaps under the weight of our sin, we need hope. Right? 
our critical spirit, our laziness, our pride, and we recognize that we're not pleasing God in our life, the joy of our salvation, in some sense, seems strangely absent. We need this. We need to cry out to the Lord and recognize that the, the end is not done yet. Maybe when relationships at home seem strained a little bit, we need hope. When husbands are struggling to love their wives as Christ loved the church, or when wives are struggling to have joy because of discontentment, or when children are struggling to obey, those, are, those can be deep, dark places. Or perhaps when, and I had written this last night, when we as a church, or when you as a church, have to deal with sin within the community. I um, was talking to your pastor this morning, and it sounds like you are talking in passage in Luke about church discipline. I, I know um, before I moved here, the last five years before we moved um, to Cedarville, we participated in planting a church. And I was one of the elders of the, of the church. There was three of us, and one of the hardest times to go through was the first time our church had to address a very clear, unrepentant sinner in our midst. And sitting across the table and appealing to them to repent and seeing the hardness of heart that's there, that we had to cry out to the Lord for hope because we were struggling. We struggled to address sin, and we knew that pleased the Lord to, to address sin in His body, yet at the same time it was a deep, dark place that we had to cry out to the Lord and ask Him for grace just as the psalmist does here in Psalm 130. The psalmist is desperate. Remember, he says, I'm like a watchman. I'm desperate for the morning to get here. And he's poised for that morning light, yet the testimony of these two psalms is that the answer to that hope might not be in in time, but it might be in the end of days. There's an end of days focus that we have to persevere in that hope from this time forth and forevermore. Or to kind of repeat what we read earlier in the service, 1 Peter 1 really addresses it well, because it says not only that we should fix our hope on future things that are going to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but he also said that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, appeared in these last times for our sake, your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, and the purpose of all of that, the purpose for God giving us an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, as 1 Peter 1 says, is so that your faith and hope might be directed to God. So the, the gospel is intended as the first step in the certain redemption of the believer, whereby they can then have faith and hope in the final work of God on their behalf. So it's just like Psalm 130 and 131, crying out to the God who forgives, crying out for grace in the midst of despair, but recognizing that our hope has to be focused upon eternity and the final work of God on our behalf. Let's pray together. Our God, we are so thankful for words like this from your scriptures. We're thankful for messages that uh, encourage us to hope because we know that we serve a God and that you are uh, a God who is faithful and you're just and you're righteous and God you promise to finish the work that you have begun in us and so God we we ask that practically this week you will instill our lives with hope in fixing our eyes upon the truth of your word that fixes our eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith and so we just pray today I pray for faith here that you will 
you will grant them hope, that they will hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And we'll ever praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen.